0: We're looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 12. Before we do, we have a uh, quiz from last week. Uh-oh. We have a quiz every week. What's that? We have a quiz. Every week, yeah. I know it, yeah. So... Uh, Mine are easier than when you get to heaven. The Apostle Paul has some really tough ones. Do so you, you, know, you, you know that for a fact? I do, I okay. do. I had, word, I had a word of knowledge. A <laughs> <laughs> word of knowledge came to me just the other day. I yeah. gotcha. okay. The main abuse of the Lord's Supper in Corinth was that some were getting drunk. No. False. False. No. Yeah, false. So that's not the main abuse. Certainly that wasn't good, but that wasn't the main abuse. The early churches in Paul's day probably celebrated the Lord's Supper as part of a meal. True, True. that's what we think generally, looks like. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament that conveys grace through the eating of the elements in order to make us more holy. Probably false, we don't usually use the term sacrament, we call it an ordinance, and that uh, it's a memorial to what Christ has done, and it doesn't uh, uh, convey grace. Uh, It's hard to say, because some people use the word sacrament, and they don't necessarily mean it means grace. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues, when I used to teach at uh, seminary, Dr. McCune said that his teacher, Alba J. McLean, always called them sacraments, even though he didn't think they were sacramental. So, <laughs> so some people call them that, but even though they don't necessarily mean what the Roman Catholic Church does or the Lutheran Church does or others do. But Generally, the sacrament has that idea. Four, the abuse of the Lord's Supper at Corinth had resulted in the premature death of some believers. True, he says. Some are asleep. Some are sick, some are asleep. Five, Paul cautions about casual participation in the Lord's Supper by those who are not obedient Christians. True. All right. So, where are we at? We're dealing with this section, Problems Communicated by Official Letter, Chapters 7 through 16, 9. And we're taking up a new section today, Spiritual Gifts, Chapters 12, 13, and 14. I say here, from chapters 8 through 11, Paul has been dealing with problems in the Corinthian church related to worship. In one through 10.22, he absolutely forbids the Corinthians to participate in temple meals. Remember, the problem there was idolatry. In chapter 11, Paul begins to take up three problems involving their own congregational meetings. First, 11.2 through 16 is a concern related to a woman's head covering when praying and prophesying. Second, in 11.17 through 34, is the abuse of the poor at the Lord's Supper. And uh, third, in chapters 12 through 14, um, is the abuse of speaking in tongues in the assembly. Paul's arguments in chapters 12 and 13 sets the stage for specific corrections in chapter 14. The argument in chapter 14 is in two parts. First, in verses 1 through 25, using a running contrast between tongues and prophecy, Paul argues for the absolute need for intelligibility in the assembly. Second, in verses 26 through 40, offering some specific guidelines beginning with tongue, Paul argues for the absolute need for order in the assembly. Since correcting the abuse of tongues is unquestionably the focus of chapter 14, it is reasonable to assume that the argument in chapters 12 and 13 leads to these correctives. In chapter 12, Paul emphasizes the need for diversity of gifts and manifestations in the unity of one spirit. Paul's emphasis is thus designed to counteract their singular enthusiasm for tongues. Now, in these chapters, we have various lists of gifts. We have a couple of lists of gifts. And uh, in the list, in chapter 12, tongues is always at the bottom of the list. Uh, after, uh, After Paul has talked about the need for greater diversity, he will list the gifts. But he always puts tongues at the bottom. So it seems to be he, he's trying to de-emphasize somewhat the gift of tongues. They have probably an over-enthusiasm for that. And that also makes sense of uh, the argument of chapter 13, where he starts off talking about, even though I could speak in tongues and so forth and don't have love. <clears throat> so their, their passion for tongues resulted in the fact that they didn't have the love for one another that they should have. And so love is set forth as a necessary uh, ingredient for the expression of spiritual gifts in chapter 13. One must have love to properly use and express the gifts. The reason for the gifts, we're told, is edification. Edification is a term that means to build up. So to help people grow spiritually, to help them mature, to edify, build them up in the Christian faith. And that's what love aims at doing. But Paul will say, uninterpreted tongues does not do that. Uninterpreted tongues doesn't edify at all, as we'll see. All right. So, the first thing we see in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is the test of the Spirit. At first glance, these opening verses would seem to be unrelated to the topic at hand. Nonetheless, Paul probably here intends to set the stage for much that follows. His initial concern is to set their experience, former experience as idolaters in contrast with their present experience as Christians who speak by the Spirit of God. Verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be Uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. In verse 1, Paul says he doesn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Verse 2 expands the point by indicating that before they were saved, the ignorance of the Corinthians was profound. He's contrasting their saved and unsaved positions. Chapters 12 and 13 are designed to correct their general ignorance about the proper role and function of spiritual gifts in the church. Verse 3, Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul does not want the Corinthians to be ignorant about spiritual gifts, so he will now make known to them the truth. They think that one's exercise of spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of tongues, makes one a real Christian. The truth is, as Paul will explain in verses 4 through 11, there is a great deal of diversity in the church when it comes to spiritual gifts, and to exalt tongues above other gifts is a serious error. The important distinction that one can draw is between the believer and the unbeliever. Between those who have the Spirit and those who do not have the Spirit. What those who do not have the Spirit say about Jesus. So the important distinction is not in the kind of gifts that a person has, but the important distinction is between the believer and the unbeliever. To be able to truly say that Jesus is Lord with all that that entails. I mean, obviously you can go out in the street and say, hey, okay, say Jesus is Lord. Somebody can say that, you know, just mouth the words. But that's not what Paul is talking about. To be able to t- truly attest that Jesus is Lord implies one confesses that, that the Jesus of the incarnation cross, and the resurrection is truly the Lord. Such a person demonstrates they have experienced the powerful transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The question of what is spiritual must begin with... Who has Christ? To put the matter another way, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. If one belongs to Christ, then one is spiritually gifted. Apparently, as is sometimes the case today, some in Corinth wish to argue that the possession of certain spiritual gifts, especially tongues, is a sign of a genuine Christian. In some Pentecostal circles, speaking in tongues is considered essential to salvation, are almost essential to salvation. Now, there we'll t- talk a little bit here about some of the various Pentecostal denominations, but um, one particular kind of, one one Pentecostal denomination, usually called Oneness Pentecostals, they're called Oneness Pentecostals because early on, in the early 1900s, there was a break, a division of the Pentecostals, and some of them became unitarians that is they deny the trinity so we have some pentecostals one the pentecostals who deny the trinity and they you know they will only talk about jesus jesus is god and holy spirit you know and so uh, for them they also say if you look at the united pentecostal church if you look at their doctrinal statement you'll see that they say that If you if you have not spoken in tongues, you're not a genuine Christian. That's the evidence of a genuine Christian. A genuine Christian has placed their faith in Christ. They've been baptized. They've spoken in tongues. If you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not a genuine Christian. Now, other Pentecostal denominations wouldn't say that, but you almost you know I don't I'm not I'm not I'm not that experienced. I've talked to a lot of Pentecostals. I've read a lot of their literature. And certainly, you could, you could begin to feel that way. If you don't speak in tongues, you're sort of an outsider. There's questions about your spiritual experience and so forth. They wouldn't necessarily say, you're not a Christian, but there's questions. Um, so, for instance, the, um, the Assemblies of God believe that speaking in tongues is available to all Christians. All Christians should be able to speak in tongues. Now that might sound a little strange because Paul will say later on, does everybody speak in a tongue? And the answer he's expecting is no. But they divide speaking in tongues up into a couple of different, they, they divide it up a little bit. They say Paul is talking about the gift of speaking in tongues in the assembly versus speaking in tongues as the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's available to everybody. Now Paul really doesn't make any such distinction here at all but, so therefore you're sort of a little it's a little problematic you know if you don't speak in tongues there's some question about you. but Paul says no the true test is what one confesses about Jesus, not what spiritual gift one has for in fact there are a diversity of gifts as Paul will now explain. okay let's look at that the diversity. Of gifts, Paul now proceeds to zero in on the specific problems of the Corinthians. Overemphasis on one gift comes by emphasizing the fact that there is a wide variety of manifestations of the one Spirit within the church. In fact, Paul will begin by noting that diversity within unity belongs to the character of God Himself. Although there is one Spirit, one Lord, and one God. A great variety of gifts and ministries characterizes each of the divine persons. Such diversity in God manifests itself, Paul argues further, by his distributing many of the Corinthians different manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. Several of these then are put forth as illustrations in verses 8 through 11. Well, first we see diversity affirmed. Verses 4 through 7. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but all of them and in everyone it is the same God at work. Paul in verse 3 has said in effect, I want you to know that all who truly confess Jesus as Lord do so by the Holy Spirit and thus attest His presence in their lives. But, there's actually a but here uh, in Greek here that has some significance maybe. But, that does not mean that there are no distinctions to be made among them. Okay, everybody has the Spirit, but there are different kinds of gifts. There's different manifestations of the work of the Spirit. Verses 4 through 6 seem intended to give the theological content within which all that follows is to be understood. Each verse begins with the different kinds, that is, varieties of spiritual gifts, making it clear that Paul's emphasis lies on diversity. Each usage of different gifts is followed by a noun that characterizes the activity of one person of the Trinity. The repetition of the same with each divine person seems to emphasize that the one spirit, one Lord, one God, manifests himself in a great variety of gifts and ministries. Thus, the unity of God does not imply uniformity in gifts. Rather, the one and the same God is responsible for the variety itself. Given the flexibility of language with Paul, one should probably not make too much of the different words used to describe the different activities of the person, divine persons. Gifts, services, and workings. Most likely, there are simply three different ways of looking at what, in verse 7, Paul calls manifestations of the Spirit. And, at the same time, however, the three nouns probably do reflect what, for Paul, would be the primary aspect of the three divine persons. Gifts should be associated with the Spirit. Service goes well with the Lord, that is, the Lord Jesus. Since the New Testament, both Christ and his followers are described as servants and workings nicely fits God, as the last clause of verse 6 shows. This God is the one who works all things and all people. Obviously, these verses have Trinitarian implications. This is a very strong passage for the Trinity here you know, when you're taking master plan for life and so forth, you study the Trinity. I'm sure Ken will say there's no particular verse that actually says God is a triune God. God is a Trinity. But this clearly suggests that Paul believed in a Trinity. He puts the three persons on an equal level here. They're the one God. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. You know, he's putting the Spirit with God and with the Father. So, that's one of the problems of that oneness Pentecostal group is of course they deny uh, they, they, they say there's just one manifestation of God. There's no there's no Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Jesus is, is the one God. Uh, there's no separate manifestations in that sense. so uh, of, of God actually, it's just one God. no personalities there different personalities. Verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. that's an important verse. These gifts, these manifestations of the Spirit are given for this purpose, the common good. In verses 4 through 6, Paul based his appeal for the diversity and the nature of God as a trinity. Now Paul proceeds to explain how that diversity is worked out in the life of the church. This verse states his thesis, which is then illustrated by the representative examples in verses 8 through 10, and concluded in verse 11 by a restatement of the concern of this verse, but with a slightly different emphasis. According to verse 7, every believer has received at least one gift from the Holy Spirit. Now to each one. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Compare 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various form. So I'm going to define the spiritual gift here. I'm using Dr. McCune, former teacher at the seminary where I taught. I'm using his definition here of spiritual gift. The New Testament here doesn't define spiritual gift. Paul doesn't define it and say exactly. He just says there are spiritual gifts. So we have to try to figure it out from what all is said here. Here's what he says. A spiritual gift is a sovereign, God-given, and Paul will say it's in verse 11. He'll talk about the sovereignty. The Spirit gives them as he desires. So it's a sovereign God-given Holy Spirit energized ability whether naturally inherited or used and used or miraculously endowed and used so that's kind of an important statement there it's a spirit energized ability whether naturally inherited and used or miraculously endowed and used whether temporary or permanent given for the service within the ministry and outreach of the local church So, uh, when I was first studying in Bible college and seminary and stuff, the definitions that you commonly see about spiritual gifts, like Charles Rowery and others, is it's an ability that you get at salvation. You receive this ability that you didn't have before at salvation. That's always a little problematic because it doesn't appear to work exactly that way. That is... If you have the gift of teaching, it seems to be uh, that it can be developed and matured, and the Spirit can use it. But a person who has no ability at teaching, and they get saved, they don't usually get transformed instantaneously into the world's greatest teacher, or something like that. You know, these it does now. When some of them, some of these gifts do come instantaneously, tongues working of miracles, healing. So the miraculous gifts, yes. That's why in his definition he says, it's spiritual energized ability, whether naturally inherited and used. So yes, you may have some natural ability, but the Spirit then uses that at your salvation, energizes that, uses that for the common good, for use in the local church. Whether naturally inherited and used are miraculously endowed. Some are miraculously endowed. Prophecy, tongues, and so forth. Those are miraculously endowed. Whether temporary or permanent. Some are temporary, as we'll see. Tongues, prophecy, apostleship, uh, working of miracles, gifts of healing. These are temporary gifts. Some are permanent gifts. They're used for service within the ministry and outreach of the local church. Non-miraculous gifts such as teaching require training and development. Miraculous gifts such as tongues are fully developed at the time of endowment. Gifts that are naturally inherited are energized at the time of salvation for service in the local church. Gifts are not for personal benefit but for the common good. That is to help others in the local church. The spirit works in each member of the body but differently in each member. Spiritual gifts are one of the important differences between Old and New Testament believers regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Only selected individuals in the Old Testament were given spiritual gifts. So, remember in the Old Testament, there's a number of passages which talk about uh, the giving of spiritual gifts, particularly with the building of the tabernacle and so forth. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters. So God gave special wisdom for people to create these garments and other parts of the tabernacle. Exodus 31. See, I have chosen uh, Bezael, Bezael, son of Uri, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, and knowledge, with all kinds of skills. So this was a special gifted so he could work on the tabernacle and so forth now Joshua son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses laid his hands on him so people had spiritual gifts in the Old Testament but it wasn't universal the the distinction one of the primary distinctions between Old and New Testament believers is that Old Testament believers did not, they were not universally gifted only some were gifted In the New Testament, all believers are gifted. And this is one of the major distinctions. So, um, there's been debate about, you know, what is the distinction of the work of the Holy Spirit between Old Testament believers and New Testament believers? When I was first saved... I had the Schofield Reference Bible. That's what I learned, everything I learned in my past rather than we learned the Schofield reference. And the and the and the, the dispensational teaching at that time, quite common, was Old Testament believers were not indwelt by the Spirit, but New Testament believers were indwelt by the Spirit. So that's the difference. Old Testament believers are not indwelt, New Testament are indwelt. And that's that that's what we were taught. It's a very common teaching. Many people believe it. Maybe some of you believe that. I believe it. At one time, uh, it presents a little problem because uh, if you're going to be saved, you need the Spirit. You remember Paul says in First Corinthians two fourteen, the natural man, the soukakos, the NIV translates that the person without the Spirit. The person without the Spirit does not understand the things that come from the Spirit of God. So, um, you know, if the person without the Spirit can't understand the things that come from the Spirit of God, what's an Old Testament believer supposed to do when they read their Bible? David and others, you know. So that was always the problem. When I remember when I went to Grace Seminary, there was difference of opinions. When I was doing my doctoral work, people would come up with different ideas. Some would say, well, Old Testament believers were regenerated, they were born again, but they were not indwelt by the Spirit. They realized you've got to have the Holy Spirit to make you born again. Well, today, uh, most people don't believe that. Most of us today, in the dispensational camp, believe that Old Testament believers were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and uh, just like New Testament believers, because the Spirit is essential for spiritual life. I don't have time to go into all the ramifications of that now. But, but my point is, this is an important distinction. That Old Testament believers, at least one of the differences between us and them is, they didn't have this spiritual giftedness that is common to every believer in the New Testament. Well, let's look at uh, Diversity Explained, verses 8-10. To one, there is given through the spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same spirit. Having affirmed in verses 4 through 7 there is a diversity of spiritual gifts, Paul now explains what that diversity looks like. He lists nine different gifts, but there does not appear to be any particular classification or ranking of gifts, except that in the two lists in 1 Corinthians, tongues is always last. Probably because the Corinthians were making too much of the gift. These gifts are primarily representative, not exhaustive, since other New Testament passages have different listings. And I've listed some there, one, two, three, four. There is a couple in Peter that he talks about. So this is one of the trick questions we used to ask students when graduating from seminary. For many years at the seminary, we had, when you graduate from seminary, one of the last things you had to do was senior doctrinal exams, but you didn't have to do that. Fortunately, you got on that in. senior doctrinal exam. So you had to go before the faculty, and you had to uh, present. You had to have present a doctrinal statement about a ten-page or so, and then you had to ask questions that the faculty would ask you for a couple hours. You know, you got to be grilled by the faculty. So we replaced that. I changed that you thank me for that (laughs) I appreciate it (laughs) we changed it to a class where I think it's better where you write a doctrinal statement you you go through week by week you write a doctrinal statement say on the doctrine of the Bible you go to class you talk about it and you rewrite so you you get more interaction that way I think it's much better but one of the questions we used to ask students was uh, are the gifts are these lists exhaustive that is are there more spiritual gifts than are here, or is this it? Is this, is this are these the only ones? Or is there a gift of piano play? You know, that kind of thing. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna solve that problem here today, but <laughs> but people differ on that. Uh, I think Dr. McKinnon used to always argue this is exhaustive. So what a so because you have some of these called you know, it's translated helping. Well, you can put a lot of things that people do under helping. You, you could say they're exhaustive in the sense that pretty much everything we do is helping other people and that kind of thing. So, I that, but I don't know that they're exhaustive. Now, I don't think it's important because I don't think we have to identify. It's important to rush out. What's my spiritual gift? i got to identify. There's nothing in Scripture that we'll see that says to rush out and find your spiritual gift. If you can look online, and I did just again, you can find spiritual gift tests. Okay, do do this and you'll find out what your spiritual gift is. I don't think that's really proper and so forth. Spiritual gifts, if you have them, will come out as you work in the local church, as you serve in the local church. It will find out what your gifts are, what your abilities are, where you're good at, try to fit you into certain places and so on. It'll come out pretty much naturally over time like that. So, uh, Let's talk about some of these. The message of wisdom and the message of knowledge are probably to be understood as miraculous gifts by which a speaker is given supernatural wisdom or knowledge from God to impart to a situation rather than the more natural gifts given the fact that the rest of the gifts in verses 8 through 10 are miraculous in nature. So it says message of wisdom message it's nothing that says that's miraculous, but the rest of these are all miraculous gifts, so we assume that is too. This is sometimes translated word of wisdom, word of, you know, this is a, a big one in charismatic circles, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. I had a word of knowledge that you should loan me $500, uh, Ron, <laughs> I just want to tell you that right now. And I'll pay you back in the millennium, okay? okay. <laughs> so you can do all kinds of things with words of knowledge, you know, they're very, very, very helpful. So, it's not Paul's purpose, I think, to identify the precise nature of the gifts, but simply to emphasize the diversity of the nature of the gifts present in the Corinthian church. Verse 9: To another, faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by that one and same Spirit. Faith is not the faith that all Christians have in Christ since Paul implies that some Christians have it and others do not have. It's probably a special endowment of faith for accomplishing of some task. Both terms in gifts of healing are plural and thus may suggest separate gifts to heal different diseases. Verse 10. To another miraculous powers, to another prophecy... To another, distinguishing between spirits; to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues; and, and, and to still another, the interpretations of tongues. Miraculous powers is probably the ability to perform various kinds of miracles. Obviously, it's related to that gifts of healing, because that's a miraculous thing. But this is apparently broader. Prophecy involves speaking the very words of God, with authority equal to the Old Testament prophets, and equal to the words of Scripture. Now, I'm going to maybe I'll talk more about that next week because uh, charismatics don't hold to that particular definition, I suppose. Uh, Most of them don't. But I'm going to try to show why that is exactly true. That this prophecy is the same prophecy we see in the Old Testament, which is authoritative, equal to God speaking the words of Scripture. Distinguishing between spirits was probably related to weighing. prophetic utterances to determine for the true from the false the devil and demons have the power to produce counterfeits as was seen with Moses and the Egyptian sorcerers and mentioned by Jesus many will say to me in that day Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and your name perform many miracles so there's a distinguishing true and false between the spirits The nature of the gift of tongues is hotly debated today. All biblical tongues, uh, are biblical tongues to be understood as real languages, like German, French, or are they some sort of unintelligible speech or gibberish? I don't mean to be, I'm not trying to be so negative when I use the word gibberish, but that's about the only way to describe just a multiplication of syllables um if you want to hear tongues speaking now go on the internet and hear it I went on there yesterday just again to listen to some people speaking in tongues and everything I heard was simply repetition of just syllables you know just you just keep repeating syllables and you can hear they're eventually get a lot of repetition it just sounds sounds a little different but it's just you know just syllables that are just keep repeating but if you look on the internet, YouTube, you can find all kinds of people who are speaking in tongues and will show you how to teach you how to speak in tongues, how to, how to do it. <clears throat> so I say gibberish in the sense it's not intelligence, intelligible language. This latter category is sometimes called ecstatic speech. The term ecstatic should be avoided since it describes the psychological state of the speaker, not the same kind of speech produced not the kind of speech produced. In other words, someone in an ecstatic state could produce coherent or incoherent speech. So you're going to see that term, people say, it's ecstatic speech. Well, that should probably be avoided. Even, um, I was looking at Wayne Grudem, who believes in speaking in tongues, says we should avoid that because ecstatic describes the state of the person, not the kind of language. Uh, In an ecstatic state, in a frenzy state, or whatever state, you could still speak coherently or incoherently. What is relevant to our discussion is not the state of the one speaking in tongues, but the kind of speech produced. It's obvious to any unbiased observer that the so-called tongues of the modern Pentecostal and charismatic movements are simply unintelligible babblings. Now, I'm talking about Pentecostal and charismatic movements. The Pentecostal movement, I'll talk a little more about that in just a moment, begins at the first part of the 20th century, the early 1900s. Then around 1960, what was confined to most of the Pentecostal churches, Assemblies of God, Church of God, Holiness Pentecostal churches, sort of broke out into evangelicalism a little broadly. And that's called the Charismatic Movement, about 1960. 67, it went into Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholics started speaking in tongues. In 67... There's also something called a Third Wave that's a little broader, that started about, a little different, started about 1980. So sometimes you say Pentecostal, sometimes you say Charismatic. You know, it's sometimes, Pentecostal is the historical name for the movement that began in the early 1900s. Charismatic is, can be used to describe all of it if you want to just say it's all Charismatic movement. Um, so, uh, Many researchers have analyzed contemporary tongues from a purely linguistic point of view. And the consistent result is that they cannot be considered any form of intelligible or cognitive language. Now that's an important point because you'll, you'll read accounts from charismatics who will say, well, somebody spoke in Chinese, it was a Chinese, you'll, you'll hear reports of this. you hear all kinds of reports of this. No one has ever taped anyone. There is no tape of anyone speaking in a foreign language in tongues anywhere around there's plenty of tape recorders everybody's got a phone it's on YouTube there is no example anywhere that I've ever seen or heard of where somebody is speaking actually in a foreign language now Pentecostals will say that's not what we're doing anyway but I want to make that point it's not a foreign language it's not an intelligible cognitive language what needs to be stressed is that tongues of the charismatic movement bear no resemblance to the spiritual gifts in Acts 1 or 1 Corinthians. Now, as we'll see, the charismatics are going to make a distinction between uh, Acts, what's happening in Acts, which are real languages, they'll admit, and 1 Corinthians, which are not real languages. But I'm, arguing, I'm going to argue they're both real languages. If it can be demonstrated that biblical, language, biblical tongues were real languages... The inescapable conclusion is that the modern tongues movement is in no way a product of the Spirit of God. When the Bible talks about speaking in tongues, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians, the usual Greek word for tongue is glossa. Glossa. So that's the that's the Greek word for tongue. We get a word like glottal, glottis, and sometimes you'll hear people say glossolalia. That's just a combination of two Greek words, which means glossolalia, speaking in tongues. So, glossa is the word. In these passages, glossa refers to languages, not unintelligible gibberish. On the day of Pentecost, Luke says that the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, glossa, Acts 2, 4. Because of Pentecost, a large number of Jews from all over the world who spoke their own native language Had come to Jerusalem. When the apostles spoke in tongues, each visitor to Jerusalem heard the apostles speaking in their own language, according to verse 6. The word language used here is the Greek word dialectos, which you get our word dialect, and it's correctly translated language. The apostles were speaking real languages. Those who heard the apostles speaking in tongues stated explicitly, each of us hears them in our native dialectos, our native language. Verse 8, and we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The words glosa and dialectos are used synonymously in Acts 2 to refer to real languages. And I, you know, I think that's universally accepted by the charismatic movement that these are real languages here. In Greek, the word glosad generally denotes the physical organ or normal language or speech. The word glosad denotes either the physical organ, the tongue, or normal language or speech. There is absolutely no example. I didn't say there was one example or two examples or five. There is no example, either in the New Testament itself or in all Greek, outside the New Testament where glossaw is used of unintelligible, incoherent gibberish, which the charismatic movement claims is biblical tongues. Now, if you know of one, let me know. But there is none. There is no example in Greek before the New Testament where glossaw means something other than languages or the physical tongue. God created Adam and Eve with the ability to communicate with language. There was apparently one language until the Tower of Babel. Although there are many different languages in the world, they all convey objective, coherent, intelligible meaning. As new languages have been discovered in remote areas of the world over the last 200 years, you know, missionaries have gone out, explorations, through un, though unknown to outsiders initially, they are all real languages conveying objective, coherent, intelligible meaning. So you can go out to a language you don't know, and you can learn it because it conveys meaning. It says things, and you can learn what it says by listening to these people talking to them, conveying, figuring out what they're saying. That's what that's what people do that that learn new languages and write and write, give them an alphabet, and translate the Bible in their language. That, that was we didn't know before. So. Uh, The tongues of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements are not real languages. If we consider the history of the church, we find the gift of tongues was universally considered to be the supernatural ability to speak authentic foreign languages that the speaker had not heard. I thought I would just cite some people. I cited a few early church writers. uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. They spoke with foreign tongues and not those of their native land. And the wonder was great, a language spoken by those who had not learned it. And the sign is to them that believe not, not to them that believe, that it may be an accusation of the unbelievers that is written with the other tongues and other lips I will speak unto this people. And not even so they will listen to me, says the Lord. John Chrysostom, coming on First Corinthians 14, 1 and 2 and as and as in the time of the building of the tower, tower of babel one tongue was divided into many so that the many tongues frequently met in one man and the same person used to discourse both in the persian and the roman and the indian and many other tongues the spirit sounding within the hymn. and the gift was called the gift of tongues because he could because he could all at once speak diverse languages augusta famous church Theologian, the early church. In the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed, and they spoke with tongues, which they had not learned, as the Spirit gave them utterance. These were signs adapted to the time, for it was necessary that there for there to be that sign of the Holy Spirit in all tongues, to show that the gospel of God was to run through all the tongues through the whole earth. John Calvin later the Reformation there was a difference between the knowledge of tongues and the interpretation of them for those who were endowed with the former the gift of tongues were in many cases not acquainted with the language of the nation with which they had to deal the interpreters rendered the foreign tongues into the native language these endowments they did not uh, they didn't at the time acquire by labor or study or in possession of them by wonderful revelation of the spirit so when you read these people who come out to the New Testament, they all agree these were real languages that the people spoke, and that's what was going on in First Corinthians, they say. In reaching this conclusion, the church fathers equated the tongues of Acts 2 with the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, insisting that in both places the gift consisted of the ability to speak genuine languages. All Protestants agreed that tongues and other miraculous gifts ceased with the apostolic age. So when the Reformation comes along, the Protestant Reformation, Protestants agreed that tongues and other miraculous gifts ceased with the apostolic age. The modern belief in the gift of tongues and the founding of the modern Pentecostalism at the beginning of the 20th century. The, the modern belief in tongues... And then I doesn't have a very good sentence there. It? <laughs> the modern belief in the gift of tongues came, I guess I should say, with the founding of modern Pentecostalism came at the founding of modern Pentecostalism at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, there's a lot of history here. I just put up a couple of men here. Well, if you, you can read this stuff online. You can read about books on uh, Pentecostals. So I'm, I'm taking this from Pentecostal writers. There's no real debate about the, how this started. Credit for this so-called rediscovery of the gift of tongues is commonly given to Charles Parham, a wholeness preacher, and faith healer who ran a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. So, uh, I don't know if you recall, but I did a series last summer about the holiness movement. So the holiness movement was a movement that began when it was in the the 1800s that emphasized instantaneous holiness. Going back to, to John Wesley, the idea of perfectionism and holiness, that by act of faith, You could become holy. You could become perfect. You could become sinless. That's the holiness movement. And uh, many of these holiness people eventually became Pentecostals. There's one denomination called Holiness Pentecostal. And the, the, the charismatic movement, the modern charismatic movement, starts here as pretty much giving credit to Charles Parham, who was a holiness preacher, faith healer. He ran a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. Beginning in 1901, he and his students spoke in tongues which they claimed were real foreign languages. So, Charles Parham was reading the Bible, studying it. He was a, he was a faith healer. And he told us There's a long story. He told his students, do not you pray about getting this gift of tongues and so forth? They, they got it. Then he got it. They believed they were speaking real foreign languages at the beginning here. Here's what he said. Cited in Topeka State Journal. January 7th, 1901. The Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of various nations without having to study them in schools. Here's another quote, January 27th. A part of our labor will be to teach the church the usefulness of spending years of time, the uselessness I'm sorry, the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for the power. Parham eventually landed in Houston, Texas. There's a lot of history I'm leaving out here. In 1905, in 1905, where African-American preacher William Seymour accepted Parham's teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. So William Seymour was an African-American preacher. He's down in Texas. He is. He listens. And I'll show you why. They were so racist back then, so segregated. Parham had to sit outside the classroom on a, in a chair. He couldn't couldn't even sit in the classroom. But he sits outside the chair. He, he hears the preaching, and he's you know he gets the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he and Parham actually had a break had a had a had were up had a falling apart because Parham wanted him to go out and to evangelize in Texas, but uh, Seymour said no. Seymour. Uh, accepted to call to pastor a holiness church in Los Angeles on Azusa Street. For over three years, the Azusa Street Apostolic Faith Mission conducted conducted three services a day, seven days a week, where thousands of seekers received the Holy Spirit. Word of revival was spread through the Apostolic Faith, a paper that Seymour sent free of charge to some 50,000 subscribers. From Azusa Street, the revival spread throughout the United States. Holiness leaders from the Church of God in Christ, Memphis, Tennessee, the Church of God in Cleveland, Tennessee, the Pentecostal Holiness Church, Georgia and Carolinas were present, Azuba carried, Azusa and carried its message back to the churches. So if you hear, read anything about Pentecostal, you know about Azusa Street. Azusa Street's a big name. There's a Azusa Pacific College and so forth. Uh, there's a lot of charismatic activity associated with that. 38 missionaries were sent out to countries like India and China thinking that they would be able to evangelize the native speakers in their own language through the use of miraculous gifts, all utterly failed. This eventually led to the idea that modern tongue speaking was not like that in Acts, but was like that in First Corinthians. So when, that, when they realized this is not these are not real languages, these are something else, then the idea was these are what First Corinthians are talking about. Although it's universally agreed that the tongue speaking in Acts consisted of real languages, today Pentecostals and Charismatics believe that the tongues in 1 Corinthians were not the same as in Acts, simply syllables that are, uh, were not the same as in Acts, simply syllables that are not real languages. Their only support for such a position is some verses in 1 Corinthians that they believe cannot be understood of real languages. So they look at 1 Corinthians, and many of you may have looked at 1 Corinthians, and you see verses there that don't seem like they're talking about real languages. Now, we'll have to talk about those as we get through 1 Corinthians, but I just called up a couple here. For example, 1 Corinthians 14, 2, Paul says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. This is understood to mean that people cannot understand these tongues, thus They cannot be actual human languages as in Acts. But such an interpretation fails to comprehend the content of Paul's statement. Paul means that no person in the Corinthian church would normally understand the language spoken by the tongue speaker since it would be foreign to the Corinthians who spoke Greek. That is, if one speaking in tongues was speaking Hebrew, he would in effect only have been understood by God since none of the congregation would have known Hebrew. It is also said that tongues in First Corinthians are different from those in Acts because an interpreter was needed at Corinth, but none was needed at Pentecost. However, the word translated "interpret" is the common word meaning translate from one language to another. It's used, it's used in Acts nine thirty-six. There was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated, interpreted, translated means Dorcas. The reason an interpreter or translator was needed at Corinth is that people there spoke only Greek. But on the day of Pentecost, there were people from every nation who could understand the various languages being spoken. The statement in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul's statement, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, that statement, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, is sometimes understood to mean that tongues are heavenly and in fact unintelligible. Now, that's, that's a real problem right there. There's no such thing as unintelligible language. God created Adam with language. God communicates to man with language. You know, there's, that, there's no purpose in that. But a study of the structure of, first, of 13, 1 through 3 shows that Paul is speaking hypothetically and hyperbolically. That is, he's exaggerating. He means, even if I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels... We know it's exaggeration because of the parallel in verse 2. If I had the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, Paul no more spoke with the tongues of angels than he can fathom all mystery, mysteries. Paul was not omniscient. Paul is only using hyperbole. Even if I could do all that and I don't have love, then I'm nothing. There's another reason to believe that the gift of tongues described in 1 Corinthians is the same phenomenon his friend Luke describes in Acts. Luke was one of Paul's co-workers. He wrote Acts a few years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So here's Paul, Luke together. Paul writes 1 Corinthians. Luke later writes Acts. The same Greek words are used in both places. In Acts, tongues is associated with foreign languages. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul associates tongues with all sorts of languages in the world. 1 Corinthians 14.9 all sorts of languages in the world there is every reason to believe that those who spoke tongues in the time of the apostles spoke real languages it's just as certain that the tongues of the modern charismatic movement are not languages and therefore are not in any way the product of the Holy Spirit I believe the interpretation of tongues refers then to the miraculous ability to translate speaking in tongues to a language understood by the church finally Diversity summarized. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one as He determines. This verse simply summarizes what Paul has said up to this point. Each person has received at least one gift, and these gifts come from the Holy Spirit who sovereignly distributes them. You say, I want this gift. Sorry. (laughs) He sovereignly distributes them to what he determines is needed for the church. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Give us understanding of these truths, we pray. Help us, Father, as we study this to reflect on our own service and help us, Father, to be faithful in our own local church. Use the gifts that you have given us for the common good. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you.